I want to welcome you to another edition of the Trumpet Series Bible Study Broadcast. This is your host, Brother Nick Bailey, coming to you live from the United Baptist Church Auditorium on this Wednesday, January the 5th, 2022. And I hope everybody's had a wonderful day. And um, it's been a very good day for me. It's been a very busy day as always, but um, uh, I'd rather be busy than bored. Amen. So thanks for tuning in here tonight. And um, appreciate... um, Another successful Wednesday night service here at our church, and I trust that you faithfully attended um, your church and supported your Wednesday night um, Bible study and prayer meeting service, and uh, got another good uh, refueling, and uh, get a fresh, uh, encouraging word from the Lord, and uh, as you prayed and fellowship together with your local church congregation. Uh, it was Wednesday night here at United Baptist Church, and that means that we kicked off our uh, United for Christ uh, youth ministry that we've been talking about. Again, we suspended that for a couple of weeks due to the Christmas holidays, but we got right back into it um, tonight and had a very successful turnout. And uh, amen, a good number of children showed up. Appreciate all of our teachers and our van drivers and our workers who helped to make it a success. And I do want to encourage you that if you do not have a home church or you don't, your church doesn't have a youth ministry for your children to participate, I want to encourage you to um, allow your children to attend the United for Christ Youth Program here at United Baptist Church. We take uh, the job of training up another generation of young people for the Lord very seriously. We have classes for all ages and teachers who take their job seriously and um, um, work very hard to pour themselves into the lives of their children. One other announcement, and I want to get right into our tonight's Bible study, but don't forget about the first ever Hope Crusade that we've been announcing here on the broadcast. It's scheduled for Saturday. January the 29th, 5 o'clock p.m. at the Convention Center in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Again, that is the Hope Crusade. First ever Hope Crusade, January the 29th, Saturday, 5 o'clock p.m. at the Convention Center located in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, where Brother D.R. Harrison, the entire Voice of Hope team will be there, along with Brother uh, Greg Locke, Kevin Jessup, they'll be doing the preaching And then the music will be provided by the Neelands, the Browders of the Day, and the Wilmington Celebration Choir. So again, don't forget about uh, that Hope Crusade, the first ever Hope Crusade, January the 29th, Saturday, 5 o'clock p.m., the Convention Center located in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. You can go on Voice of Hope website and you can pre-register for the crusade if you would like. So remember that announcement. Just by way of prayer request tonight, let's continue to remember uh, Linda Stockton, uh, Greystone, Free Will Baptist Church, uh, Union Chapel, Free Will Baptist Church, Kathy Neese, and these congregations that recently lost their pastors. Remember Elizabeth Ward, remember the Dunbar family, Donnie and Taylor Flores, Sean Brobeck, James Henry Davis, and uh, Tank Black, 
health needs. A few others that were mentioned during tonight's service. Uh, don't forget uh, to pray for Mike and Sandy Long. Remember the Betty Coggins family. Remember Roger and Rita Knight. Remember Joanne and Anthony Knight. Michael Knight. Remember David and Kay Harrison as they're sick. Brother Sam Hardy as he began his um, treatments today uh, to um, fight against his brain cancer. Remember a, a lady that got saved this evening. Uh, one of our church members on the way to church stopped and uh, uh, witnessed to a lady who has cancer, a lady by the name of Pam Ward, and she gave her heart to Christ. So thank God for a new convert. Remember um, others as well who are especially in need of prayer. Remember the Cook family. Uh, Pastor Cook, the man who's pastor of Malsheim Church of God here in Greenville, uh, who himself, along with his uh, stepdaughter, were shot. Uh, this week, the other day, here in Greenville. So remember uh, another... And boy, I'll tell you what, you know, the devil has local men of God and pastors on his hit list, and he's made a target after uh, local pastors, so we need to remember them and their families as well as their church families. So let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight and ask His blessings upon another edition of the uh, Trumpet Series. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you, God, for given me this chance to once again conduct this broadcast. And Lord, I pray that you'd use it to be a help and a blessing to those who view and listen to it today. And Lord, I pray that your word might be used to make a difference in our hearts and lives. God, I pray that we would not uh, let the word of God go in one ear and out the other. But Lord, I pray that we'd allow it to take root, penetrate in our hearts and bear an abundance of fruit in our lives. God, I pray that we would... Um, uh, Lord, um, trust you to use your word, take it and use it to, um, uh, Lord, to bring forth fruit, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. Lord, I pray your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light in our path. We'd hide your word in our hearts that we might not sin against thee. We're going to praise you in advance for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Right, last night we finished up verse number two in our study of chapter number six of Paul's letter to the Romans. And um, we saw how that Paul followed up the initial question he asked in verse number 1 with an important follow-up question in verse number 2. In verse 1, Paul asked, What shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Then in verse number 2, the apostle asked, How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? And I believe the answer to both of those questions is found in the first two words of verse 2 where the Bible says, God forbid. In other words, it's impossible, it can't happen, and there's simply no way for a person who's truly been saved, justified, and declared righteous by a holy God to continue in sin and to keep on practicing a habitual lifestyle of sin after he or she gets saved. Occasionally, yes, exceptionally, maybe, but normally, frequently, or habitually, as an everyday manner of life, not at all, my friend. So over the first two days of this current study, we've kind of went overboard and maybe to extremes, so to speak, to show how dangerous of a thing this cheap grace movement is that has become so prevalent in our world today. And by that I'm talking about how the person can come to Jesus, get saved, and somehow keep on living the same sinful lifestyle they were in 
before they professed Christ as Savior. And I did my best to use these verses as well as others throughout the New Testament to, jo- to show just how false, fake, and phony of an idea such a thing is. Now, does it sound good? Yes. And would it not be such a very convenient thing for we sinners to think we could somehow come to Jesus, get saved, but have our cake and eat it too by continuing to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season as if nothing ever changed? Well, I could go on and on about that, but for time's sake, we must move on and consider other important areas of our study here in Romans chapter number 6. Yesterday I told you that Paul was getting ready to provide us with some details and evidences to the fact of just exactly how we who are saved can be dead to sin as the Bible describes for us in verse 2, yet still deal with the danger, the threat, the temptation of sin that still uh, readily exists in our lives even after we become born again. And that's where I want us to pick up with today's study as Paul begins to provide us with some specific details regarding how we are who are saved can truly be dead to sin even though the seed, the law, and the nature of sin still dwells in our hearts as human beings even after we get saved. And as I told you on yesterday's episode of the Trumpet Series broadcast, Paul goes to great lengths to discuss this truth over in chapter number 7 of the book of Romans and we'll soon find that out. And I just love that chapter as, as Paul... It gives me a lot of hope to see how that, that Paul struggled with the reality of sin in his life, even as a very mature um, spiritual giant of the faith, yet he still recognized the reality and the danger sin posed in his life, uh, even at that point in time. But uh, again, uh, we're going to see that uh, before it's all said and done. And um, praise God uh, for that fact. But tonight let's begin looking at what we want to refer to as a recognition. Verse number 3, Know ye not. Know ye not. Here we find the first of three important words that are provided throughout the remainder of Romans chapter number 6 which reveal to us how we who are saved, we have been justified and we have been declared righteous, can truly be dead to sin as that old sinful nature still exists in our hearts even after we are converted. And this word know is used a total of four times beginning with verse number 3 and continuing on down through verse 16 of our current chapter. Paul continually repeats this word know. In other words, I believe the thought Paul is trying to convey to us here in these verses is that if our lives are really and truly going to be come dead to sin after we get saved, and if we're not going to continue to allow ourselves to keep on living the same old sinful lifestyle that we used to live in before we became born again, then there are some things we're going to have to know, recognize, and be aware of as God's children. And that's why I believe Christian growth in our knowledge and understanding of spiritual things is so absolutely vital and important of a thing. You know, one thing that we can't ever do is to underemphasize um, and to trivialize the importance of knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong, there's more to salvation and more to cre- living the Christian life than, than having knowledge. In fact, I'm afraid that for many of us, our problem is not, uh, it doesn't have to do with what we know because we know 
plenty. The problem is uh, what we do or what we don't do with the knowledge we have acquired as Christians. Again, what I know is not the problem. What I do with what I know so often is the problem in my life spiritually, and I'm sure many of you can relate to that. But yet, you know, knowledge is important. And just because there are other things besides knowledge that we should focus on as Christians, that doesn't mean we can neglect or totally do away with the importance of growing in our knowledge as Christians. Uh, Amen. Uh, Because um, I'm telling you, friend, Christian growth, and that's what we're we're talking about here, Um, the word know. Uh, As someone once said, what we know affects what we do. Christian learning determines Christian living. Duty is based on doctrine. Belief determines behavior. And as long as we stay ignorant, we remain impotent. Let me say that one more time. What we know affects what we do. Christian learning determines Christian living. Duty is based on doctrine. Belief determines behavior. And as long as we stay ignorant, we remain impotent. That's why I believe Christian growth and our knowledge and understanding of spiritual things is so absolutely vital and important. But thing, before I go any further, we need to be careful that we don't allow the acquired knowledge that we have as Christians to foster and develop a sense of pride or arrogance in our lives. And I've not known a lot of people, um, many of whom are saved, who have acquired a lot of knowledge, genuine biblical knowledge, but yet what they know and what they have learned about God, about Jesus and about the Bible, has caused them to develop a sense of pride and arrogance in their lives. Amen. And if, you're, if the acquired knowledge that you have as a saved Christian, no matter how hard you may have worked, and regardless of how much effort you might have put in to acquire that knowledge, if that knowledge fosters and causes you to develop a sense of arrogance or pride, then all of the knowledge you have is a, is a waste. Amen. And I believe the Apostle Paul um, even refers to that. Let me turn quickly uh, over as I'm trying to mind the Holy Spirit of God tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Uh, and though verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Charity, or excuse me, knowledge without humility and knowledge without charity and knowledge without love. Uh, Knowledge is a waste. It's vanity unless it is accompanied with the right spirit and the right attitude. But yet knowledge is important. That's why in 2 Peter 3.18 the apostle wrote, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to Him Be glory both now and forever. Amen. We have been commanded to grow uh, in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. By the way, I don't just want to know about Jesus, but I want to get to know Him personally. There's a lot of people who know a lot of things about Jesus, but the question is how intimately and how personal is our knowledge of the Savior. 
2 Peter 1, 5 and 6, the Bible says, And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance. How about Romans 15, 4, where Peter wrote, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of Scripture might have hope. Uh, so again, uh, our knowledge and our learning and our understanding of spiritual things comes uh, through our learning and uh, through uh, as we expose ourselves uh, to the access we have to the Scriptures and to the truth of, of God's Word. And friend, the way we increase the degree of knowledge and the level of understanding we have as Christians is by being faithful in our daily study of God's Word, which is what the Trumpet series is really all about. 2 Timothy 3, 24-27, Paul told young Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for corrections, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works. But here's the thing, friends. Spiritual growth comes from knowledge. And the truth is, if we don't know, then we simply won't grow spiritually in the way God uh, would have us to. One, one thing I know for sure and beyond a shadow of a doubt is that God's perfect will for your life is that you might grow uh, in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, friend, you will, not grow, you will not grow in grace unless you know the truths of God's Word. And the only way you're going to know the truths of God's Word is if you regularly expose yourself to biblical truth by your daily Bible study. Amen. As the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. As you partake of the milk and then later on the meat of the Scriptures, just like a baby grows as they partake of the milk that comes from their mother and later on as that child grows and develops and matures, he begins to uh, partake of the meat that comes from the dinner table. And the more food he eats, uh, the more he grows. Spiritually speaking, the more milk and meat we partake of and the more knowledge we acquire as we expose our lives uh, daily to the, to, regular, to the regular study of the Word of God, our lives will naturally grow because of what we know. But back to our text, Paul realized that if the readers of his letter were truly going to be dead to sin, then they were, there were some things they were going to have to know and be aware of, particularly as it related to their own personal salvation. There's an identification, verse number 3, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ. So the first thing Paul wanted his audience to know and be aware of is that they were baptized, that they had been baptized into Jesus Christ. And he uses, the apostle uses the word baptized to illustrate just exactly what it means for a born-again Christian to be dead to sin. And here the word baptized can either be translated into the word immerse which represents the true intended mode and method of baptism, to immerse under the water. That's the biblical definition. You can't get around that. And I'm not going to get very far into it other than to say that it is absolutely impossible 
to get the true intended meaning uh, out of biblical baptism unless it is carried out in and through the method of immersion, immersing someone in under the water. And we may say it a little bit, say a little bit more about that here in a moment, but for now let me just say that the word baptize also carries with it the thought of identification or the idea of being identified with or alongside of another person, our identification. We are, um, amen, we are identified with uh, or alongside another person. And this certainly applies to either physical or spiritual baptism uh, as it relates to the fact that we who are both physically and spiritually baptized into the body of Jesus Christ, we are identified with Him uh, when it takes place in our lives. Now let me just say a word here a moment about physical versus spiritual baptism. Now the first question is, when does spiritual baptism actually occur in our lives uh, as Christians? Now this goes back to the discussion we had just the other night regarding the difference between the Baptist versus the Pentecostal view and doctrine of spiritual baptism. Now let me first say that many Pentecostals believe that spiritual baptism, also known as the baptism of the Spirit, occurs at a later time following salvation and is more rightly connected with what they view to be an instantaneous act of sanctification. Again, not all Pentecostals believe that, but many do. Where they are indwelt by the Holy Ghost, which is evidenced by a newfound ability to speak in an unknown tongue or a heavenly language. And at that time of this instantaneous sanctification, or this second work of grace, so to speak, at some point in time after salvation, they become sanctified, which occurs in conjunction with the baptism of the Spirit, where the indwelling of the Holy Ghost gives them the ability to speak in an unknown tongue. And again, I'm not throwing off on those who believe this. I'm just saying that this system interpretation that is adhered to by many Pentecostals is just different from the way we Baptists view things. As far as for us, we believe spiritual baptism occurs not following or after salvation, but in accordance with it. And is actually an evidence in itself that somebody is truly saved, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So as Baptists, we believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost, where believers are actually indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, occurs not following our salvation at some later date, but it occurs in uh, coincidence with and at the very moment when a person gets saved, and becomes born again. And why do we believe that? Well, because when we get saved, we are actually born or saved by the Spirit. And to be saved is to be indwelt by the Spirit. And to be indwelt by the Spirit is to be saved or to be born again. So that's spiritual baptism. But now let's talk actual and physical baptism for a moment, which is a type, We again, as Baptists, we believe it is a type, a picture, and an outward expression uh, and representation of what has taken place literally, inwardly, and spiritually in our own hearts through the miracle of the new birth. So, your friend, so you see, friend, my baptism into the body of Christ does not literally occur when I get immersed and under the water, but it actually transpires in my heart and life when I become born again by the Spirit of the living God. 
And physical water baptism, even when it is conducted in the correct way, the right mode and method, which is undoubtedly immersion, it is nothing more, and I don't mean to minimize its importance because baptism, water baptism is important, but yet uh, we, might, we must not be guilty of making it more than it is. It is a type, it is a picture, and it is a representation of what has already transpired in my heart and life when I got saved. Now that doesn't mean that water baptism again isn't important because I like to refer to it as the first important step of obedience in the life of a born-again Christian. Uh, again, he or she who has been baptized spiritually in the body of Christ uh, should also have a desire to follow the Lord in physical and literal baptism which symbolizes and represents what already has taken place in their heart and life when they got saved and baptized spiritually into the family of God. And when we are baptized in the water, we are publicly identifying ourselves with Jesus Christ. And we are publicly testifying and witnessing to that which has already taken place by way of our spiritual birth and baptism into Christ's body. So when it comes to baptism, whether it be physical or spiritual uh, in nature, I believe the key word is identified or identification which we're going to talk about uh, beginning tomorrow uh, on the Trumpet Series broadcast, to be identified with Jesus, our identification with Christ. Because when we are baptized physically, we are identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ as well as with what happened in our lives on the day we got saved. But when we are baptized spiritually at the moment of our conversion, we are being identified with Christ as it relates to to what He did for us through His death, burial, and resurrection. And I believe uh, all three aspects of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, are all represented by, correct and, by the correct and proper mode and method of baptism by immersion. Right now there's a termination. We were baptized into His death. First step. So here we find what I believe to be the first part and the, the, the first aspect of our newfound identification with Christ by way of both our spiritual and physical baptism. And that is, when we are both physically and spiritually baptized, we are first of all both identifying ourselves with as well as allowing ourselves to be identified with the death of Jesus. Now physically speaking, this occurs as we allow ourselves to be immersed in under the water which in itself represents the death and burial of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but just as importantly, especially as it relates to our current study, um, physical baptism by immersion also represents our spiritual death to sin that transpires at the moment of our salvation. Very quickly, let me just ask you this. How could any other mode or method of baptism by, by immersion actually represent either the death of Jesus or our own spiritual death to sin that occurs and takes place when we get saved. Could that be said about either the mode of sprinkling or pouring? And I'm not, uh, amen, I'm not knocking these things per se. I, I'm not trying to make fun of them. I'm, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to these other modes or method of baptism. I'm just asking and I'm just 
stating a fact that neither of them could actually serve as a way to accurately represent what happened to Jesus when He died, as well as what happened to us when we ourselves died to sin. Again, Jesus was buried. When we are immersed into and under the water, it represents our death to sin and our burial. Uh, amen. G- the bar- excuse me. Jesus' death, His bodily death, and His, and the, and his burial. Uh, amen. But it also represents our death to sin and the burial of our sins with Jesus Christ. On the other hand, you, you could say that both the modes of sprinkling and pouring could represent the washing away of sins, which is not the intended purpose of water baptism, for only the blood of Christ could ever wash our sins away. And, and whether it be rightfully or wrongfully, I'm afraid that both sprinkling and pouring uh, methods, uh, the, the sprinkling and pouring methods of baptism, and I'm not saying that's the intent, but they give the impression that the water of baptism liter- actually washes away uh, the sins of those who are being baptiz- baptized, which is certainly not the case. Only... What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow, that which makes me white as snow. No other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the sprinkling, not the pouring, or even the immersing of water. Whether it be in a baptismal pool or even in a free-flowing stream can wash away man's sins. Only the blood of Christ can uh, have that effect in and upon the life of a sinner. But now let's consider how our spiritual baptism in the body of Christ causes us to be identified with the Lord Jesus in a spiritual way. And in order to answer that question, I believe we must determine just exactly what the death of Christ for us sinners, uh, especially as it relates to the effect sin had upon us, before we got saved and before Christ died for our sins, what does it actually represent? What does the death of Christ represent? And I believe the answer to that question can be found in the fact that the death of Christ, it provides man with an opportunity to be delivered from the penalty of sin, which is death. The Bible tells us uh, a little later on in this same chapter, in the very last verse, for the wages of sin is death, verse number 23 says. But then again in Romans 5, 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But when Jesus died in our place and for our sins, He literally paid the price and suffered the penalty of death, not for His own sin, but for our sins. And as a result of His death, we who are identified with Christ, death, Uh, We who identify ourselves with Christ, death by allowing ourselves to be spiritually baptized into Christ's body at the time of our salvation, in essence, we at that moment, the moment that we place our faith and trust in Christ, we die um, instantaneously to the penalty of sin, not by way of our own death, but through the death of Jesus that He uh, made for us uh, on the cross. And ultimately, we sinners who could have died and should have died because we're the ones who are guilty and we're the ones who've sinned against God, not Jesus. 
but because we have identified ourselves with Christ through our own spiritual baptism into Christ's body on the day we got saved, we don't have to die. Hallelujah and praise God for that. And we do not have to face the penalty of sin, which is death, uh, because Christ already faced it for us when He died in our place and for our sins. And by that, uh, by the way, I'm referring to spiritual death. I'm talking about eternal damnation in the flames and fires of a, of a devil's hell separated eternally from the presence of God. So that's how we who are saved have died to the penalty of sin, which is death. By allowing ourselves to be spiritually baptized into Christ's body, not at a later date after we get saved, but the very moment when we call on Jesus and the Holy Ghost of God is birthed into our hearts spiritually. Now there's an eradication. Now we, we, so we've talked about the death of Christ. Now let's notice His burial. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Verse 4, an eradication. Now if we're not careful, we'll overlook the burial of Christ as it relates to the relevance of the gospel message to our lives as Christians. Can I say to you that the burial of Jesus uh, uh, plays an important and a vital role in the gospel just as His death and His resurrection does. According to the Word of God itself, Christ's burial is a vital and an integral part of the gospel message. Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And remember our current text speaks to us about how we sinners are able to identify with each and every aspect of the gospel, whether it be His death, His burial, and His resurrection. You say, but Brother Nick, just exactly how can we who are saved identify with the burial of Christ as it relates to both our physical and spiritual baptism into Christ's body? Well, first of all, let's consider for just a moment what the act of burial symbolizes and alludes to. What do we think of when somebody or something is buried? To bury something or someone simply means to hide it, to cover it up, or to remove it from one's sight or reality of existence. Just like when you bury a corpse, you are covering that old dead shell of a human being up so it is covered up or hidden. It is removed from our awareness while it rots, smells, stinks, and decays. Now I know that's not a, uh, that doesn't paint a, a pleasant or a pretty picture, in our minds, but yet it perfectly, I believe, represents what Jesus did with our sins when He suffered, bled, and died for us and on our behalf. And most of all, when He was buried for our sins. You say, what did Jesus do? Well, He buried them. He covered them up. And He hid our sins from the very awareness of a holy God as if they never actually did exist uh, and as the Bible uh, describes for us, He has cast them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered against us anymore. That old uh, red-back hymnal song says it best, In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. I'm talking about the fact that when, G when you got saved, Jesus buried your sins. He covered them up and He hid them from the very presence of a holy God so that they'll never be brought up against you anymore. 
And once again, this was demonstrated through the burial of Jesus. For when His lifeless body was placed in that cold, dark grave, it represents the fact that the sins of all humanity were buried there with Him. But praise God for the fact that when Jesus rose again, and when Christ came out of that cold, dark grave, He didn't bring our sins with Him, because that would have defeated the purpose for His death. But He left our sins where He buried them, and where they still remain unto this very day in that cold, empty tomb. And one of my favorite gospel songs says it this way, That tomb, it wasn't really empty, but hallelujah, glory to His name, it was full of our sins. I'm talking about how we who are saved can rightly identify ourselves with the burial, not just identify with the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, but also with the burial of, uh, of our Savior as well. Preacher, how do we actually do that? Well, spiritually, we identify ourselves with Christ's burial at the time of our spiritual baptism. That is, when we first get saved and our sins are identified with all of those sins that were buried with Jesus when He was placed in that empty tomb. And when you and I get saved and when we become born again, uh, and when we are spiritually baptized and birthed into the family of God, our sins are literally identified with the buried body of Jesus Christ. But also... When we are physically baptized, I believe our going down and under the water not only re represents the death of Christ on behalf of our sins, and mind you, I'm also trying to, to, to describe to you and to get, get across to you the importance of the biblical mode of immersion because it's only through immersion that uh, the, the actual truth God meant to convey through baptism Water baptism can actually take place. Not only does water baptism speak by immersion, speak of the, uh, the death of Christ, but it also speaks towards the burial of Jesus as well. And how that our sins were buried with Him as His body was placed in Joseph's borrowed tomb. So when we are baptized, I believe it's important for us to make sure we allow ourselves to be fully submerged. Immersed and submerged in under the water, which typifies the fact that our sins were fully buried in that old tomb with Jesus. Most of all, how many of you are thankful tonight for the fact that your sins were buried with Christ? Both when He was buried as well as when you were spiritually baptized into the body of Jesus Christ at the time of your conversion. Now there's a resurrection. Verse number 4, that like as Christ was raised from the dead. Here Paul momentarily shifts away from our identification and our affiliation with Christ in His death and turns toward our identification with the Lord Jesus in the likeness of His resurrection. Again, we are identified with Christ through both spiritual and physical baptism, not only through the death, the burial, but also through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this verse, we are first introduced to a word that summarizes pretty much everything Paul is trying to convey and get across to us in this entire passage of Scripture. And that is the word like, which speaks about a likeness and a resemblance to and a familiarity with another person or thing. And again, we're going to speak more about that as we consider the next verse of the chapter, which is verse number 5 tomorrow in our study.
But before we talk about the word like or likeness, I think it is necessary for us to establish the reality of Christ's resurrection as it is described for us here in verse number 4 of the book of Romans chapter number 6. And thank God for the resurrection. Amen. How many of you are thankful that He's not dead? But We don't serve a dead God, but we serve, hallelujah, praise His high and holy name, a risen Savior. Thank God for the resurrection as it more than anything else is what completed God's great plan of salvation on behalf of sinners. And in spite of the importance of Christ's death which caused us sinners to be delivered from the penalty of our sin which is death as well as the significance of Christ's burial as it typifies the burial, the covering up and the eradication, the removal of our sins from God's holy presence. If it had not been for the resurrection, all of the wonder, the splendor, and the magnitude of Christ's vicarious suffering, death, and burial would have all been in vain. It simply was not enough for Jesus to die for our sins. It simply was not enough for Him to be buried uh, for our sins and for our sins to be buried with Him. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13 through 19, the Bible says eloquently, so, or as much, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ uh, be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain, and yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So thank God for the resurrection because through it Christ sealed the deal. He finished the job and He put the finishing touches on His great life's work of giving we poor lost sinners total and permanent victory and over our sin, you say, but Brother Nick, what is it? What is that one specific thing that the resurrection did as it relates to our ultimate deliverance and victory and over sin? Well, if you remember, we've already talked about how that the death of Christ provides we who are saved with victory and over the penalty of our sin, which is death. But through the resurrection, and this is where... All of this ties in so neatly with the entire context of the entirety of this current section of Scriptures, chapter number 6, 7, and 8 of the book of Romans. Amen. Again, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus provided not only victory over the penalty of sin, which is death, but also it gives us and it secures us with the opportunity and the availability that we have to win victory over the power of sin as well. Through the resurrection, Christ proved that He had ultimate, eternal, and never-ending power and over both sin and death. The Apostle Paul wrote so masterfully in 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be unto God, 
which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Praise His holy name that we have victory in Jesus, not just because of the death and the burial of Christ, but most importantly, by way of His visible and bodily resurrection. The crucifixion of Christ secured our victory and over the penalty of sin, which is death. Yet the resurrection of our blessed Savior secured that we who are saved would now have eternal and never-ending power over sin and death. Not just victory over the penalty of sin, but also victory over the power of sin as well. Now there's a foundation by the glory of the Father, verse number 4. Here we find the origin and the source by which God used to raise His darling Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. And that is the doxa or the Shekinah glory that came from the Father. Now we know that in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God manifests itself periodically, temporarily, and externally as it occasionally fell down upon God's people and empowered them for service. And a perfect example of this is found in and through the life of Moses as the Lord gave the great prophet a glimpse of His glory as God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and allowed His glory to pass by Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And as a result, the Bible tells us that as Moses came back down off that mountain, his face shone with the glory of God as it had reflected from off of his face. But after a while, And you could read the book of Exodus and find the record of this. The Bible tells us that after a while the glory of God faded and God's people were no longer able to witness it as witness God's glory as it manifested itself because that uh, revelation of glory was only temporary in nature. But then when Jesus came down to earth and walked, talked, and lived among men, the Bible tells us that in Him dwelt the fullness of that same glory. The Bible tells us in John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as long as Jesus Christ was alive here on earth, He represented the fullness of God's glory as it was revealed from out of His life through all of the miracles He performed, which culminated with the greatest miracle of all, which was His own visible and bodily resurrection from the dead, which proved uh, the fact that Christ had all power, ultimate power, never ending, everlasting and never-ending power over both sin and death. Uh, again, but after Jesus ascended back to heaven, the Lord sent the Holy Ghost. To indwell believers and through our own baptism spiritually into the body of Christ at the time of our conversion, the Bible tells us that the same glory that reflected off the face of Moses and exuded out of the life of Jesus now began to radiate out of the hearts and lives of God's people through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And whereas in the Old Testament the glory of God reflected Uh, off of the lives of God's people in an external manner. In the New Testament, and especially after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost began to indwell believers, we, uh, or excuse me, the glory of God began to radiate, not reflect as it did in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, God's glory began to radiate, uh, not 
off of, but out of the hearts and lives of God's people as it began to abide continuously and permanently in our hearts and lives. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul wrote it this way, For God, who hath commanded the light to shine out of darkness, He hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. What a treasure you and I have access to by way of the internal indwelling presence of the Shekinah glory of God. And although we who are saved have access to the Shekinah glory of God that dwells in our hearts inwardly, as a result of our salvation, we also have access to God's glory externally and from an outside source as well by way of the written Word of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with an open face Beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So according to Paul, as we or we who are saved, as we expose our lives to the glory of God that exists not only inwardly through the Holy Ghost, but outwardly through the pages of the Scripture, our lives are changed into the very image of God's glory more and more from one level of glory to another through the internal presence of the Holy Spirit that indwells our hearts and lives as born-again Christians. You say, preacher, what's your point to all of this? Very simply, the same Shekinah glory and dunamis power of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells, lives, and abides within our hearts and lives as well through the pages of God's Holy Word. And on one of the most wonderful and precious treasures that you and I who are saved have access to is the eternal never-ending, an eternal never-ending supply of the Shekinah glory and the dunamis power of God that exists by way of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that, my friend, is what gives us who are saved the power to be able to have victory and gain deliverance not only of the penalty of sin through justification, but also the power of sin by way of our own progressive and gradual sanctification. Now there's an invigoration. Verse number 4, Even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now tomorrow we're going to do our best to show how that when we get saved we're baptized not only into the likeness of Christ's death, but also into the likeness of His resurrection. But for now, let me just conclude today's study by showing how that one of the great purposes of the resurrection was to provide we sinners who were previously dead in our own trespasses and sins the ability to walk in a newfound access of life. Amen. We have been given in and through the Shekinah glory and dunamis power of God that dwells within our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit of God. And spiritually speaking, although before we got saved, the Bible describes us in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 2, as being dead in our own trespasses and sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the apostle wrote, And you hath he quickened uh, who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And this word quickened simply means to be made alive or to be given life. And then again in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, Paul wrote, Even when we were dead in sins, 
hath quickened us together, God has quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us, uh, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, what does that sound like to you when the apostle uses the word hath raised us up? That sounds like a resurrection to me. And this goes back to the indisputable change that occurs and transpires in the hearts and lives of everyone who truly experiences the amazing and marvelous grace of God in their own lives. And just as we illustrated yesterday and last night, the change as going the, the change that occurs as going from being blind to being able to see, now we find the example used of going from being dead to now being made alive. I once was dead, but now I have been made alive by the amazing, marvelous, and wonderful grace of Almighty God. And although this goes right along with what we're going to talk about during tomorrow's broadcast, just as Jesus physically rose again from the dead after it had been laid in that cold, dark tomb for three solid days, so also when you and I get saved and become born again, the Lord uses the same Shekinah glory and the same dunamis power that raised Christ from the dead to perform a spiritual resurrection in our own hearts and lives. And as simple as I know how to put it, that's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to be given a brand new spiritual life just as we were given physical life at the time of our first birth. And as the Lord Jesus Himself said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it more abundantly. In other words, we who are saved, and we who have been born again, and we who have been given eternal life in and through the Holy Spirit of God, that was birthed in our hearts at the time of our, our conversion, our salvation, our justification, not at a later date, not at some second work of grace, some secondary act of sanctification. No, when you got born again, you were baptized into the family of God. The Holy Ghost, uh, you were birthed into the family of God by the Holy Ghost uh, as it took, took up residence in your heart and life and you were given brand new spiritual life. Uh, you were made a part. You, you, you were, were introduced into God's family. Uh, you were given life that you a newfound life that you did not possess before you got saved. Amen. We who are saved and we who have been born again and we who have been given eternal life in and through the Holy Spirit of God that was birthed into our hearts at the time of salvation. We now have access. You listen to me as I summarize it all tonight. We have a newfound access to an eternal, never-ending supply of God's Shekinah glory and His dunamis dynamite power that, among other things, gives us the ability, and this is what Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter number 8 are all about, all about, gives us the ability to overcome the power of sin. Not just the penalty, not, not only give us victory over the penalty of sin, but now gives us deliverance and the power to, to, and victory to overcome the power of sin that once had a grasp, a grip, and a chokehold around our lives before we got born again. So there's no excuse for anybody who is saved. 
uh, again, to be bound by the chains of sin. To continue to remain and under the yoke and under the grip and under the grasp of, uh, uh, of sin as it previously existed prior to our conversion. Why? Because when we got saved, uh, there was a dynamite explosion that occurred in our hearts. Uh, the Shekinah glory of God began to radiate, uh, to, to, to well up inside of us. And, and there was a newfound power that you and I have access to. It exists way down deep in the depths of our heart. I'm talking about the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same power of Je- that, that raised Jesus, the same dunamis, power and the the same Shekinah glory of God that raised Jesus up from the dead exists. It eternally exists in our hearts by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And because of that, you and I are without excuse. And whether we want to admit it or not, we have the power. We have the ability. Uh, We have access to victory. We've been given victory, not over not only over the penalty of sin through justification, but also we've been given victory over the power of sin through sanctification. Amen. And we can overcome the power of sin that once existed in our lives before we got born again. Heavenly Father, I love you. And I thank you for another uh, edition and another episode of the Trumpet Series broadcast. Thank you for another opportunity that we have to conduct this Bible study. Lord, I pray that it be a a blessing to uh, the listeners and the viewers, just as it has been to me as I've studied and prepared myself to deliver these truths. God, I pray it go out, Lord, not through the limited ability of the flesh, but through the unlimited dunamis power and the Shekinah glory of God as it is delivered not just from out of my lips, from off of my lips, but out of the pages, the the dynamite pages of the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. I love you and I praise you and I thank you, not only for what you have done, but for what you're going to do through the Trumpet Series broadcast. I ask it all in Jesus' precious name and for His sake. Amen. Good night and may God bless.